Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. today. It was good seeing some of you. I haven't seen in a little while. Uh, welcome. And uh, there are seats. Those of you who are still coming in, uh, there's some off to the sides and whatnot. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to keep going in our Colossians series. And uh, if you want to grab your Bible, your app, or whatever you're using to find the Scripture today, Colossians chapter 1, we're starting verse 15. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning uh, as your people, many here knowing you and professing your name, and some that do not, I pray that they would come to know you. But Father, we want Uh, you to do a work of spiritual transformation in our lives that would lead to gospel saturation in the world around us. Uh, Father, will you change us? Will you um, focus our eyes on you today? And as we seek to be transformed by you, that we wouldn't be looking at ourselves, we'd look at you. Uh, You do the work. By the power of your Spirit, will you move up and down these rows and these aisles into these living rooms and coffee shops and people that are joining us online, wherever they're at, that your Spirit would be present and would work and transforming, conforming, convicting, confronting, and changing us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 is where we're going to start today. As you're turning there, let me ask you this question. What's been the greatest moment of glorification in your life? Time when people made a big deal about you. Maybe it was your birthday party. Your mom did all the work, but they celebrated you. It's awesome. Uh, Maybe you hit a home run in Little League. Maybe you did a great presentation at work. But at some point in time when you've been exalted, when people made a big deal about you. And I was thinking about uh, when I was growing up uh, this week and just thinking through uh, different times of glorification, different times when it didn't work out so well, and there's sporting moments and academic moments and things like that. And I remembered a time when my dad wanted to spend time with me, which is a great dad, right? But he wanted to do something I wasn't a big fan of. He wanted to go bowling. And so little known fact of me, I've been in a bowling league. Just put that out there right now. And uh, those of you in bowling leagues, you're awesome. Those of you who want to make fun of me, I totally will receive that afterwards. Uh, but it gets even worse. The reason I was in a bowling league is because I wanted to go roller skating on Friday nights. Uh, So I grew up in a different era than some of you here today. And uh, I wanted to meet cute girls as a middle schooler. And where they hung out at, I believe, was the roller skating rink. And so I wanted my dad to take me on Friday nights there. My dad wanted to spend time with me. So he said, why don't we do this father-son bowling league together? I had no interest in bowling, but it got me to the roller rink. And so I did this thing. My dad was a good bowler. He'd go out, strike, and spare, and then maybe he'd miss one, but then he'd get another strike. And I was a terrible bowler. I was like, gutter ball, gutter ball, try the left hand. Nope, that doesn't work either. This is terrible at it. So bad that we got last place in this father-son league. Now, I told you it was a different era when I grew up. Uh, I'm not here to make fun of participation awards today. That's easy to do. We could do that. But everyone didn't get a trophy uh, growing up when I was a kid. And it was time for the banquet at the bowling banquet. We finished in last place. I had no expectations of any acknowledgement during this banquet. But then I got a trophy. They called me up to the front. They hand me this trophy. And it's a trophy of a guy bowling between his legs. <laughs> they actually hand it. My dad was like, why don't you go up and get it? And so I went up and get it. And I got it. And then I thought about it later as an adult. And I thought, there were adults that decided to actually mock me as a kid for how bad I was. And I don't know what it was like, but I tried to imagine. Was there like a committee for the father-son bowling banquet? And these guys are getting together and they're going over the scores. And they're like, oh, these are the ones that won. Oh, these are the most improved, you know, MVP. This had the best individual. Look at this guy. How did he get a four? 
How do you get a four? There's 10 frames. Like, just start making fun of me. And his name was probably Earl. Doesn't that sound like a good bowling name? Put Earl on the shirt. If your name's Earl, we love you. Glad you're here today. <laughs> probably a great bowler. So Earl's sitting there, and he talks to Bob and Steve, and they're like, what is this kid doing? Bowling between his legs? And then they decide, let's make a trophy of him bowling between his legs, and then we'll give it to him in front of everybody and see what he does. Little Bob and Earl and Steve standing in the back as I get my trophy, like, what in the world? They were mocking me as adults to as a kid. So, different era, no participation awards. That was not a moment of glory for me. But we all want to be glorified, right? Like, I want you to think I'm a good pastor, and you probably want somebody to think good things about you, and maybe it's your spouse, or maybe it's your parents, or somebody, or maybe it's the people in this church. We all want to be glorified. Here's the problem we weren't created for our own glory. We were created to glorify Jesus Christ. And here's how the Bible says it actually works, and this is going to be a key statement for this whole sermon today, that your exaltation of Jesus leads to your transformation by Jesus and glorification for Jesus, which is how it was designed to work. Your exaltation of Jesus leads to your transformation by Jesus, which He's making you more like Him, and then His glorification in this world. And we see that in passages like in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul writing there, and it's not our main verse today, but I'll read it to you, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, he talks about what we behold we become. And that can be good or bad, by the way, but he's talking about Jesus here. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, and we will all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, so as we behold, we're changed, transformed into the same image of whatever we're beholding, Jesus here, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. He's the one who does the work, the transformation, who is the Spirit. Now, here's what we're going to do in today's message. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Colossians that some people say is the richest pastor or passage of Scripture in all of the Bible for looking at exalting Jesus Christ. And so, what we're going to do for the next 35, 40 minutes is we're just going to exalt Jesus, see what transformation He wants to do in our lives, and Lord willing, at the end of the service, Jesus is glorified. Amen? So, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you were with us in our last series, you know that what we did is we talked a lot about how there are false versions of Jesus in the world. There's, you know, prosperity Jesus and social justice Jesus and political Jesus, just wrap him in an American flag and worship him. And there's all these different versions of Jesus that are out there. And so we asked the question, who does Jesus say that he is? And we walked through the gospel of John. And in John, you see these seven great I am statements where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm your source of satisfaction. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the resurrection and the life. Amen? It's not Easter. We're always celebrating Easter here at Southbridge, just so you know. Jesus is risen. And he says these things about himself, but what do other people say about him? And what we're looking at in the book of Colossians is what a guy named the Apostle Paul says about Jesus. Now, what you need to know about Paul is he hated Jesus until Jesus radically transformed his life. And now he's writing to a church in Colossae, which is close to Ephesus, uh, if you're looking at that part of the world, in Turkey area, if you're looking at modern day today. He's never been to these people before, but he knows there's false teaching coming into the church. And so he's writing to them so they can stand against this false teaching, and what he gives them is who Jesus really is. And if you were with us last week, you know that Pastor Dave was telling us about this prayer for transformation that happened. And what was happening, if you go back to about verses 10, 11, 12 in Colossians chapter 1, is that Paul says, I pray that you would know God's will. Why? So you can walk worthy of the Lord, 
Why would we do that? Because he's transformed us from a, a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Who's his son? Who's this king? That's what he's talking about in verse 15. Look at it with me. He is. You might underline that. Those of you who write in your Bibles or if you have an app, you might highlight that because it's repeated throughout this passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Also, even the angels and the demons, he created all that. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is, there it is again, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is, I underline that, the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent above all. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so what's happening here, Paul is combating this false teaching. And as we go through the whole book, we're going to go through every verse in this book. As we go through, we're going to see there's different forms of false teaching that are coming in that are very similar to what we're facing as a church in America. Some of you have been in legalistic churches before where it's, yeah, we believe in Jesus, plus don't do all this bad stuff and do all these good things. And so it's Jesus plus the rules, then God will love you. And that's one of the things that he's facing in Colossae. Another one is that in order to really know Jesus, you need some climactic experience in your spiritual journey. He's battling against that in Colossae. Another one is that there are, there's a spiritual elite group of people that they have a special secret to spirituality the rest of us don't have access to. He's battling against that. Another thing is they're really close to Ephesus, like I said, and so they worship the goddess Artemis. And it's like, well, you can add Jesus in, but don't be messing with Artemis' spot. And so it's always Jesus plus something else. And so you can add Jesus to your life, no problem. And, and, and Paul's going, no, 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 that's not the issue. Jesus is preeminent. He's above all. He knocks all the false gods off their thrones. Amen? But it's painful, and it's transformation. We call this series that Jesus changes everything. And you may want to change some of those things. And so what Paul does, instead of going through and deconstructing each one of those false teachings, he says, you want to be strengthened against all the false teaching that's coming against you? Then let's exalt Jesus Christ. We're going to show you who he is. And so then what he does, he exalts Jesus. His desire for these people is that they would be transformed. He's just prayed that, and then Jesus would then be glorified. And so we're going to exalt Jesus. We'll just walk back through this passage of Scripture and talk about each one of these things that have been said about Jesus through here, and there are a bunch of them. And so it said, if you just walk back through, I'll give you the whole outline. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, creator of the universe, head of the church, firstborn from the dead, the fullness of God, the reconciler of all things. And we haven't read the whole passage yet. <laughs> and so there's a lot to say here about him. In fact, one Bible commentator I read this week said this. I, I jotted the quote down. He says, it's Norman Geisler. He says, no comparable listing of so many characteristics of Christ and his deity, which means he's God, are found in any other scripture passage. Christ is the supreme sovereign of the universe. <laughs> There's a lot here. So let's get started. Uh, the first one is in verse 15, the first thing that we read. He is the image of the invisible God. That's our first point. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Think about that. How do you make something that's invisible, visible? Some of you here, have you ever done this before where you're going to bed at night and I see some of you have young people with you, you've got the kids have left their toys out or different people left their clothes out and you decide before you go to bed you're going to pick everything up and so you start picking stuff up, you pick up those Legos because they're like foot magnets, aren't they? 
you walk up across your living room floor and you will step on one of those things. You pick the Legos up and you pick the clothes up and you put the pillows back on the couch and for some reason your wife's got pillows you never used and you put them where they're supposed to go and so you do all that stuff and you go to bed and you feel like my house looks clean. Then you get up the next morning before everybody else is awake. Everybody else is still in bed and the sun comes shining through the window and all of a sudden you don't live in the Sahara Desert but it looks like there's been a dust storm at your house. Have you ever had that before? Well, listen, now you can see all the dust. You got wood floors, you got it on the table, wherever it's at. There's just like dust everywhere. You couldn't see it. It was invisible to the naked eye the night before. But now that the sun has come through, you can see what was formerly invisible. Let me read you the context for our passage. Go back to verse 13 in Colossians chapter 1. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's who He's talking about in verse 15. In whom we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, what He's saying here is, if you want to know what God looks like, God is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. None of us will ever see Him, even when we get to heaven. But if you want to know what He's like, look at Jesus. Some people have said, talking about the incarnation, which is a big word that just means that it was God in the flesh is that Jesus is deity, which means God. He's deity wrapped in humanity and humility. He's God in the flesh. He's showing us what God is like. And what Paul's saying here in verse 15 at the very beginning is, come and see. You want to come and see God? Come and see God? Come and see Jesus. You think about the things that we go see. Go see a sporting event. And what will people do for that? To get tickets. And not just in this COVID where there's like 25% of people in there, but like Think about Cameron Arena, like I think it's five or 6,000 when it's max capacity there, and people camping out in teepees uh, to get tickets to the UNC game, staying out overnight time, they'll give up time. People pay money to do things. You ever been to a movie where people dress up like the character? I remember one time I went to a Star Wars movie, the guy next to me was wearing burlap, but it was dark in the room when he came in, he sat down, I'm like, is it John the Baptist? Like, what in the world's going on here? A little scary. People dress up like the characters. People go on vacations, go to see Mount Rushmore, faces chiseled on a mountain. You hop in an RV, spend all the time with your family, try to see this. You're going to see something. Go see the, Great Can- the Grand Canyon or the Eiffel Tower. One day I want to go see Dubai. I've never been to Dubai. I don't know if any of you have been there or not, but I've heard there's a, a skiing inside of a mall and a restaurant made of ice when it's 90 degrees outside. I just want to see. What is that like? And you see these different things. I saw a story this week of a guy, his name is Gene Purdy. He's in Denver, Colorado, if you want to look him up on the internet. And uh, he was blind. In fact, he, as a child, he had a degenerative disease where he couldn't see from the central part of his eyes and it started to get worse and worse and he slowly lost vision. He could have had a little bit of peripheral vision. And the story was about him bumping into this girl at the park. He would go to the park every day and she would see him at the park every day and she'd wave to him. He'd never wave back. He walked by her one day, and finally, in a boldness, she said, hey, why do you walk by me every day? I wave at you every day. You never even say hi. And then he said, well, I'm blind, (laughs) which she forgave him for that. (laughs) They got married. They had a child. Uh, When their child was one year old, uh, she was watching Rachel, the wife was watching Rachel Ray on TV, which I don't know if it's a cooking show or a talk show. Don't tell me. I don't need to know about daytime TV, but she's watching it. And they had these people on there that uh, had these e-sight glasses. And these glasses can help people with certain degenerative eyesight issues be able to see. It cost $15,000, but she saw him on there. She wanted to see if it would work for her husband. She wrote Rachel Ray. She went on. They brought him on the show. And the first thing he got to see after 15 years of being blind was his wife. Can you imagine what that was like? 
He looked at her. She was holding uh, his son. His words were, wow, she's pretty. (laughs) Can you imagine if someone said to you, come and see God? No one could see him before. But you want to see him? Come come and see. The Apostle John says it like this in in John chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, talking about Jesus, has made him known. In other words, you want to know what God looks like? Come look at Jesus. In John chapter 14, uh, there's a situation where Jesus is about to leave his disciples. He's going to the cross. He's hours away. He spent years with them at this point. And one of them says to him, Philip says, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And so if you're ever wondering what God's like in some area, it could be any area. What is he, what is he like concerning sin? What, is he like, what does it mean that God is love? What, is, what does it look like for him to forgive? What, does he really love sinners? Whatever you're thinking about God, you want to know if it's true or not, you can just make it up in your mind. You go and look at Jesus. You go to the Gospels. And you say, what does he think about sin? Is it true when I listen to a hellfire brimstone preacher? Or is it true when I listen to a preacher that's like, God's good, everybody's cool. Like, what is it? Well, you look to Jesus. What is, what is it like? And so you go and you read the Gospels, and he think about what he thinks about some versions of church. He goes to the temple. He overturns the tables because they've turned religion into a business. If your church is running like a business, Jesus is not cool with that. It's not just everybody's cool. It's good. Well, he says about in Matthew chapter 5, if you lust after a woman, it's like you committed adultery with her already. Oh, but it's cool, but it's all forgiven though, right? Well, he says if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So it seems like he takes sin pretty seriously. But if I haven't named your sin and you're feeling pretty good about yourself because lust isn't your thing or you're not running the church like a business and maybe you just like you gossip or whatever uh, and you feel real self-righteous, he says if you're self-righteous, he says to self-righteous people, Matthew chapter 23, if you want to know that I'm not making this stuff up, he says on the outside you look great, but inside you're dead. That's not a compliment. And so what does God think of our sins? All the self-righteousness and the sexual and all the other stuff in between takes it really serious. But then you see him with prostitutes and tax collectors. You say, well, how, how can he be grace and truth at the same time? What about justice? He talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And so it's real. And it's like, what is, maybe it's not all this stuff we're being told, but what does this book say? And so we go here. You want the image of God? Then we look to Jesus. And where do we know about Jesus? It's, we go to this book and we see his life, his works, his ministry, his words. What does he think about you? He loves you. But what if I haven't been forgiven? What? He's coming after you. You want to know what his love is like? It's a love unlike we've ever experienced until we've experienced Jesus. Because he doesn't die just for his family. He doesn't die for his friends. He dies for his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know what he's like? Then look at, look at Jesus. That'll show you what, what God is like. He's the image of the invisible God, and he should be exalted. Amen? As we exalt him, he transforms us and he receives glory. Look at the next one. It says that in verse 15 still, that he is the firstborn of all creation. So second point, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Amen. He's the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? This is a verse that gets twisted up sometimes. There are different cults that will take this verse to say that Jesus is a created being. 
In fact, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are the most popular. I know some of you have come to Christ out of that, that background. Some of you have met those. Maybe you've had those people come to your front door before. I remember one time I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my front door. There was two of them together. They usually come in teams. Um, I think I've been blacklisted. They haven't been back since this time. Uh, but they came, and the guy, I remember the exact visual of him being there. He had a Bible, and on top of a Bible, he had another book, and then he had some pamphlets in the book. And so he rings, the, they always ring the door at the worst time, right? Like you're doing like yard work or doing something else. It's like God testing you to see, are you going to be faithful and share the gospel with these people? At least that's how I feel like it is for me. And so I go out there to the door. I didn't really want to talk to this guy, but he starts talking about Jesus. He starts saying stuff about Jesus that isn't true, but he's talking good. He's talking nicely about Jesus. And he talks about Jesus being a created being. And we start discussing this. And then I said, I saw, I looked at what he was doing with his, so remember the visual. He's got a Bible and then there's a book on top of the Bible and he's got these pamphlets. And finally, I said to him, I said, you know, the problem is you're reading that bottom book through the lens of those other books. Get those other books out of here and just read that book. Because this church or whatever you want to call it, the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall was telling him that Jesus is a created being. Now, here's the reality. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. If you just take a verse and twist the verse, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, Satan uses scripture, okay? So you can take, that's false teachers, always give you enough truth that it's believable, and then they twist it to get you off track. And so you want to know if Jesus is a created being? Put this verse in context. Let me read you verse 16. You want to know if he's a created being? Look at what verse 16 says. For by him all things were created. Wait, if he's the creator, he can't be part of creation. It says, for by him all things were created. We don't even have to go far for the context. So what does it mean here that he's the firstborn of all creation? Well, the problem for many of us in this is that we don't understand the way that firstborn is used throughout the Bible. But if you know the Bible, this will click for you. It doesn't mean the first in chronological order. Sometimes it does. But why is it then that you see people like David, who King David, not the first king even of Israel, so much less the firstborn person, is called the firstborn for God in Psalm 89, if you want to look it up, Psalm 89, verse 27. David wasn't the firstborn, he's not the firstborn person, he's not the firstborn king, he's not the first, he's not even, first, he's not even the firstborn of his own biological father, Jesse, but he's called the firstborn there. It's because in the Bible, firstborn is not talking about birth order, it's talking about rank. Jesus is the supreme of all creation here. That's why verse 16 goes on to say what it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, any kings, or dominions, or rulers, that's demons, angels, anybody, all or authorities, all things were created by him, through him, and for him. He's first. That's what's being said here. He is the supreme one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here's the problem. When we live for ourselves then, we're fighting against him, and he's got all the authority. Do you want to know what God's like? The first one, the image of the first, or image of the invisible God? Well, the firstborn of all creation, what does that mean? Then go to the Gospels, and you start looking at Jesus. Go to like Mark chapter 2 and 3. In Mark chapters 2 and 3, you'll see him heal a bunch of diseases. There's a leper, there's a paralyzed guy, there's a guy with a withered hand. And usually we, we isolate those stories and we jump in there and we're like, man, that's a cool story. He touched a leper. God loves unclean. He makes unclean people clean. And it's all true. But he's showing us in those two chapters there that, that Jesus has authority over all disease. And then you keep reading through, and you go to the chapter, chapter 3, and you see him working there, and healing diseases. You chapter 4, and there's the storm, famous passage of Scripture where Jesus calms the storm. And, and so we'll talk about how he goes out, and the wind and the waves obey him. And it's true, and the passage says that. 
But what we're seeing is he has authority over any difficulty. Authority over all creation, over all nature, even the elements obey him. Then you go to Mark chapter 5, and in Mark chapter 5, there's this guy, he's demon-possessed. No one can control him. They try to chain him up, and he's running around naked, acting crazy. No one can do anything to this guy, and Jesus casts demons out of him. And we can tell all kinds of jokes about what he does in the thing, but at the end of the story, it's pretty revealing that the guy's wearing clothes, he's in his right mind, and the village comes out and asks Jesus to leave. Why? They're afraid of his authority. He's got authority over demons. He's got authority over difficulties. He's got authority over disease. And then you keep reading in Mark chapter 5, and there's this guy who comes to Jesus with his, his daughter who's ill, Jairus. His daughter dies. Jesus raises the dead. He's got authority over death, over disease, over difficulty, over all of creation. The question we have to ask ourselves is, does he have authority over all of us? Because when we start saying there's parts of my life that I'm going to give you authority and parts that I'm not, we're fighting against God. That's pride that's the root of that. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The humble are the people that are going to exalt Him. He'll transform us, and then He will receive glory. Amen? Let's look at the third one. The third one that He says here is not only is He the creator of all these things, but He's the sustainer of them. Verse 17, Colossians chapter 1, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Let me just read you some facts about creation and then try to wrap your mind about, around this statement that he holds all these things together. I read these this week. It says, the sun sits in orbit 93 million miles away from the earth, burning at 11,500 degrees Fahrenheit. By the time its heat reaches the surface of the earth, the temperature has reached an average of 72 degrees. 50 degrees warmer, we're dead. 50 degrees colder, we're dead. How in the world can 11,500 degrees come to us at the perfect temperature without divine design? The Earth's rotation is overwhelming to consider. It rotates at 1,000 miles per hour. If the speed were to slow down by even a tenth, we would either freeze or burn up like a rotisserie chicken. It's perfect for our existence. But not just that, but the way that it orbits. It says there's also great intentionality in the Earth's elliptical orbit. We're moving at 64,800 miles per hour. If that speed were to reduce by one-third, we would burn up. Our globe's rotation is precise. The moon sits at 240,000 miles away from the earth. If it had been placed one-fifth of that distance closer, the tides of the ocean would cover the continents twice a day. It's a great flood to destroy us two times a day. Wouldn't that be nice? Hey, where's your hot air balloon? Here comes the flood. It's noon. Then Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It's very similar to what we're reading in Colossians. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this isn't great effort by him because he has great power, but it's great intentionality. He holds it all together. This is in Colossians 1.17 again, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If he can sustain the universe can you trust Him to sustain you? He deserves to be exalted. Amen? Let's keep going. Look at the fourth one here in this passage. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the sustainer of all things. And the fourth one, Jesus is the head of the church, verse 18. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church. There are a lot of metaphors in the New Testament for the church. There's the assembly of God, and there's the bride of Christ, and there's uh, all kinds of different ones that are used. But here, he uses body, and uh, here, 
um, he's talking specifically about the head and what the head means. Now, throughout the Scriptures, you read like 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, 14, talks about us being a body and how the body works together, and you can just remember it like this. There's no appendix in the church. Appendix is the poisonous part that you can do without. There's people that present like that sometimes. But God's got a plan for everybody that's in the body. Every part of the body is necessary, but the head, the head's different. You can cut off every extremity. You can cut off fingers, toes, legs, arms. You cut off the head, life is gone. What's being talked about when Jesus is the head is that He is the source of life and He is the ultimate authority that sets the direction for the church. And so what does that mean? That means this. That means the Pope is not the head of the church. And no bishop is the head of the church. No cardinal is the head of the church. No pastor is the head of the church. I don't care if you've got a celebrity pastor that's on every news broadcast every time something happens in the world. I don't care if you've got a pastor who's got the coolest pair of jeans ever. You've got a cool pastor. I don't care if you have a founding pastor. I'm not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of the church. There's no, you can't put a bunch of people together and then they become the head of the church. Like elders aren't the head of the church. Um, deacons, I don't know what the, all the different types of churches, presbytery, advisory boards, councils, like committees, whoever's bored in the church, like they, that doesn't make them head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Regardless of how any church functions, Jesus is supposed to be the head. Now, here's what happens. You cut yourself off from the head, you lose life. Eventually, according to the book of Revelation, you lose your influence. And so there are lots of churches that function without Jesus Christ for lots of reasons. People pleasing, we're going to do whatever all the people want us to do, or we're going to, we're going to do whatever the culture is telling us to do, or we're going to do all these things. But if you get disconnected from Jesus, the life is gone, and the influence eventually, he says, he'll take away. In fact, if you read the seven churches in Revelation, which we don't have time to do today, you go through and read them, there are two that receive the highest praise. Historically, those are the two that last the longest with influence. There are two that receive the most rebuke. They're uninhabited places today. And you read what God's warnings were to those places. You read what He says there. He says in Ephesus, hey, you're doing some good stuff. You've lost your first love. Repent. Go back to what you did at the beginning, or you're going to lose your lampstand, your influence. You're a light in this community in Ephesus. I'm going to take the light away if you don't come back and love me. Don't get disconnected. You're disconnected. It can appear to have life for a while. I went fishing with my daughter the other day. I don't know how to fish. She doesn't know how to fish. We went with a guy who knows how to fish. And so he's putting the bait on our hooks. He's sending out there. He knew how to fish. He wasn't catching anything. I don't know. I've been fishing before. I told my daughter. I said, listen, it's boring. We're just hanging out. And uh, you're going to have to be really patient. He throws her rod in there. Like five seconds later, she's reeling in the first fish. She caught four fish before we even got to do much of anything. And she's catching all these fish. She's like, this isn't bad, Dad. Like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, that's not how this is supposed to work. And she got kind of cocky in the deal. And she said, you know, I'm throwing out these lures and catching these fish. What if I took that first fish that I caught, because he's kind of small, and we used him as the bait? Maybe we could catch a fish. She understands how the life cycle works here. And I was like, that's a pretty big fish. And she's like, well, why don't we cut it in half? She cuts the head off, throws the fish back in there. Then she's amazed at, look at the fish. It's got no head, but it keeps flickering around. And I said, honey, it's just a matter of time. That's, there is no life there. It's just neurological or something. It's, it's going to flip around for a little while it's dead. And there are some churches that have signs of life. They've been disconnected from Jesus Christ. And so, what the role is for a leader in the church is to discern, how is Jesus leading this church? That's why it said when you look at leaders in the church, they're supposed to be able to teach the Scriptures because they're going to be able to look at the Scriptures and discern, what is God saying here? 
And so you, you, you're supposed to be able to say if you're a deacon, elder, whatever your role is in whatever brand of church uh, that you're going to, a lot of times Baptists use deacons, other churches use elders. We have elders in our church that are leaders. There's a plurality of people. Their job is to discern the direction of the church, but they do that not by deciding on their own, like, what do people want the most? Or what do we think we should do? It's where do we think Jesus is leading us? And so what happens is, the way it's supposed to happen is say the culture is being bombarded by false teaching. Oh, they go to a book like Galatians. Teach your people Galatians because that was, that was geared towards fa- against false teaching. Or people are minimizing who Jesus is. Okay, go to Colossians. Or there's a bunch of immorality. Let's look at 1 Corinthians together. Or, or, or they're, they're, whatever the issues are, the Bible addresses it. We need to train up more leaders. Okay, then we'll go to Timothy. Like you just, you, we want to send people to the nations. Look at Romans and what Romans has to say about that because God's already spoken to us about how to lead His church. We've got to discern then in the time and in this context, what does he want at this moment to teach these people? That's how we stay connected to the head. And the head directs, and the head has authority. And Jesus is the head. No other person is, no matter how big their personality is, no matter what the denomination says is supposed to take place. If you read the Scriptures, Jesus is the head of the church. Amen? So we should submit, and he's our source of life. And what's the fifth one here? The fifth one here, we see he's a reconciler. Jesus is the head of the church, and Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Look at that in the second part of verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, we've already talked about that firstborn doesn't mean first in chronological order. Now, we know that's true for this for sure, because if you were here two weeks ago, I preached about how Jesus rose somebody from the dead. He raised, raised Lazarus from the dead. And we talked about in this sermon… Jairus' daughter, raised from the dead. If you go to the Old Testament, Elijah, raised somebody from the dead. There are people that are raised from the dead before Jesus. Now, Jesus is the first one to raise from the dead and not die again, which is pretty interesting. Because as great as that looking at John chapter 11 was and Lazarus being raised from the dead, I'm going to tell you something, Lazarus died again. If Lazarus didn't die again, he'd be at every Christian event today, all right? Everybody would want to hear from that guy. He died again. Jesus didn't. Jesus is risen. Yeah, y'all are paying attention. I love it. I keep exalting him here. And so, you think about Easter morning. We're just a couple weeks away from Easter. Think about what happened in, in that tomb that day. No one was in there with him. So, we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't say exactly what it was like inside that cave. But imagine, dead for three days? You watch the movies, and, and these movies will periodically have these moments where somebody dies, and then they come back, right? And it's like, None of us here, 99% of us here don't know how to read a heart monitor. Is that true? Like, there are a couple of doctors here, but most of us don't. But we all know from watching movies, if it goes flatline, that's bad. But we also know from watching movies that after 30 seconds, if it goes bleep, it's like, there's hope. No heart monitor in the tomb. I don't know that for a fact. It seems like that's probably true. I wasn't there, but flatline for three days. And then when that heart started to beat, I wonder what that was like, by the way. When Jesus was resurrected, was it like a, <gasps> and he's there? Or was it more of a controlled, oh, time to get up. But his heart started to beat. Hadn't beat for three days. Then, when that heart started to beat, death was defeated. Sin lost its sting, 1 Corinthians 15. And he would never die again. He would be resurrected, glorified, then ascend to the Father's right hand, and then be exalted by us and transform us to be more like Him so that He would receive glory and that our lights would shine in this world and that people would look at us then and wouldn't give us glory, but would give glory 
to His Father who's in heaven. Amen? Because they would look at us and they would see Jesus, and as they see Jesus, then they see the Father because He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the sustainer of all creation, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. So He can resurrect us. He can transform us. He changes us. He gives us life. Look what it says, what the implications of His resurrection are in verse 21. I read to you verse 18. I'll just read you verse 19 and 22 so we don't skip them. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Doesn't mean everything will be reconciled to Him. We know that people will reject Him, but the opportunity's there. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile, he's writing to believers here, in mind, Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Remember verse 13, we were transformed from darkness to His kingdom. He's referring back to that here, doing evil deeds. We're hostile in our minds that led to bad behavior, and He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order, here's the reason, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Well, think about that. Holy, holy means to be set apart for God and sinless. How is that possible for any of us? The Bible says that we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God because we choose creation over the Creator. We fight against Him. We do our own thing. So how can we be holy? It's because when He died at the cross, even the prophet Isaiah talks about this 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. He says, though your sins were scarlet, they will be as white as snow. When He died on the cross, the shedding of His blood we just read about, when you ask for forgiveness from sins through the shedding of His blood, without the remission of, there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. The Bible says, through the shedding of His blood, you are cleansed from all unrighteousness. So God chooses to see you as holy. Now think about that. Just reflect on that for a minute. Think about what you've done. Think about the sin that you've been involved in. But then God sees you as holy? He should be exalted, huh? And then it says next, blameless? Blameless? That's sacrificial language. That's the language that's used in the Old Testament, that when you bring a sacrifice to God, it's supposed to be without spot or blemish. A blameless sacrifice. Jesus was the blameless sacrifice. He lived a life without sin because we couldn't live a life without sin. And so, He was the sinless sacrifice on the cross in our place. And so, that's how we can be blameless. But this next one's what gets me above reproach because they keep building on each other, holy and then blameless and then above reproach. Above reproach, to, to get reproach is to have somebody bring an accusation against you. Satan, we're told in the Scripture, is the accuser. So you think of the sin that you've done, your biggest regret, whatever your secret is. You don't think he's going to fling that against you before God? He did this. And you know he denied you, God? Did you know that this, what about the secret that no one else ever found out about? But here we are on Judgment Day, and he's throwing accusations at you. And Jesus Christ steps forward and says, that's already been dealt with. It might be true, but I've already paid for it. And so you don't pay twice for the same thing. I paid for it at the cross. So there's, there's no blame on this person because I've already dealt with their crimes. You're blameless before God because of that heart that started beating in the tomb that day. He should be exalted. Amen? As you exalt Him, He transforms you and He receives glory. And what's evidence that God's done that kind of work in our lives that we would do that? Well, that's verse 22, and it's our sixth characteristic we look at. Jesus is worthy of enduring faith, verses 22 and 23. Jesus is worthy of enduring faith. It says it here, if, and that's a big if, if indeed you continue in the faith. Ah, oh, here's where you tell me I have to be a good person. Okay. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and on which I, Paul, became a minister. So does that mean that this all depends upon you? No, he's the one who does the work. See, the Holy Spirit's the one who even opened your eyes that you could see Jesus. You'd be blind to Jesus if it wasn't for his spirit working in you. And then as you exalt him, he transforms you that you become more like him, which means you desire his will. Remember the prayer from last week? I pray that you would know his will, that you'd walk worthy of him. He's the one that's doing all this work in you. If the work is happening, it becomes evident because your faith endures. You keep trusting him is what that means until the end. Because the reality is, and I don't know all of your stories, there are people in this room today that before you die, you're going to walk away from Jesus. You profess Jesus, maybe you were baptized, maybe you confirm whatever your denominational background was, you said the right things at some moment, you had some great experience, you thought you heard from him, you believed some verses in the Bible, but you will walk away from him. John talks about that. John says in, in 1 John, don't be surprised at that. Those people were never really one of us. Because here's the danger. It's really easy to assimilate into church life, religious life, and not be connected to Jesus for life. And that happens all the time. And what Paul's saying here is, you want evidence? You want evidence of who's genuinely with you? It's this enduring faith, a long obedience in the same direction, not perfection. We're all going to fall short. We're all going to mess up. But we stay connected, keep short accounts of our sin. We stay in line with Him. We walk with Him. And we're faithful to Him. That's how you know. A steadfast hope in the gospel. And so, do you have that? I'm thinking about faithfulness this week. I read a story about a couple in Iowa uh, Gordon and Norma were their names, Jaegers, if you want to look them up. Uh, they were an old couple. They were married for 72 years. Talk about faithfulness. And they decided to go, they were leaving their little small town to go into town to go to the store. They got in a car accident. They never made it to the town. Um, the accident was severe. Uh, they went to the emergency room. The ICU had broken bones. And at, uh, he was 94 years old. She was 90 years old. So you can imagine how fragile their bodies were at that point. Um, and their kids talked about what they were like in their different ICU rooms. So that both of them were asking about the other one and their love and care for one another. It became evident after some time uh, that they weren't going to make it. They were both going to die there in the hospital. And so they moved their hospital beds together and they held hands. They died an hour apart from one another. He died first and then her. And uh, the confusing thing, though, was one of their kids was telling the story about in the ICU that dad had stopped breathing, Gordon had stopped breathing. It was clear that life had left his body. But on that heart monitor, they could still see the blips of the heart. So they called the nurse in. They said, he's not breathing. Seems like he's dead, but the heart monitor is still showing this. And then the nurse explained, well, he's holding your mom's hand and she's still alive. Her heart's beating through his body and it's showing up on the monitor. I thought, we talk about being connected to Jesus for life change, that He's the head, that He's the authority, that He's directing our lives. Long-term faithfulness is His heart beating through our veins and being shown in our world that we experience such spiritual transformation that leads to then gospel saturation in the world around us through you. Because you are walking in God's will, because you're connected to His Son, you're knowing what He wants from you and walking in those things. As you exalt Him, He transforms you to that so that he'll be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we ask, will you change in us? I don't know what all the things are you want to change in us. Some of us are thinking. Some of us are thinking about you. Some of us are thinking about issues, topics. Some of us are behavior. Father, will you change us to all be at least one degree more like your son, Jesus Christ, than we were before we came into this room? I pray if there's anyone here who does not place their faith in your son, Jesus, that you'd bring them from death to life. The Bible says that if you don't know Jesus, that you're spiritually dead. 
but you can have life if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. So whether you're in this room or you're watching online, if you want to place your faith in Jesus, it's real simple. What you do is you acknowledge your sin and your need for a Savior, and if you believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be saved. And so, Father, I pray if there's anybody here who needs to trust your Son as Savior, that right now they would acknowledge their sin before you and ask your Son, Jesus Christ, to forgive them and come into relationship with you. And Father, I pray for those of us who do know you, but maybe reflecting on you as the sustainer of the universe has caused us to realize we need to trust you, maybe with money or our kids or something that we haven't been trusting you with, or, or maybe as reflecting on you as the creator of all things has shown us that you do have authority and that our holding out is really fighting a losing battle and that we would surrender. Or maybe as we thought about you as the invisible the image of the invisible God, that we know that we can come to you to know what God is like. We don't have to guess anymore or wonder or create God in our own image, in our own minds. And Father, I pray you do that work in our midst right now. And you just talk to the Lord as you need to talk to Him. And you continue. I'm gonna, even when I say amen, if you want to continue to pray, don't feel like you have to stop praying. You just talk. He wants to meet with you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.